Welcome to RPG Reanimators, a podcast for GMs where we dissect horror scenarios and offer our experiences and advice to reanimate it at the table. I'm Nathan. I'm Alex. And I'm Lex. So let's see who's in the waiting room. Today, we're consulting on an acute case of good GM habits. We'll discuss lessons we've learned from our games and offer advice on how best to run horror games. Now, let's begin our consultation. So this is a pretty broad topic, talking about good GM habits, and I don't think any of us will proclaim to be the end-all be-all of it. Let's start with Alex. Oh, Alex disagrees. All right. Uh, Alex, what are some tips that you've gotten from your game running that you see as a good habit? Well, I believe that in order to be a good GM, you have to know your table. You have to listen to your players. You have to watch them and look at their body language and see what's working for them. You have to control the pace. I liken it to a roller coaster. When the game is not so tense and it's relaxed, you want to up the tension a little. And when it's too tense, you want to lower the tension so you have a dynamic flow. That keeps players interested. Uh, And if we're just going down good GM habits, I also like to stay organized because Mm. if I'm running a game, I want to be on top of everything, whether that means knowing the material rereading the scenario multiple times and something that i like to do that helps me just transition into combat like butter Mm -hmm. i make a table for myself with everyone all the npcs all the pcs in dex order i have the important information in each row of the table or each column of the table each row represents the, the npc or the pcs each column represents uh an important attribute such as sanity health or or dexterity and a little distinction i like to make for npcs is i highlight the box or row and have that be in like a lighter gray if it's an npc and if i'm not even using that npc in the combat at all i just black it out Mm -hmm. Um, and that's how i get uh, that's how i transition into combat like effortlessly and your players won't even know like you you are in (laughs) combat and it really speeds up gameplay so much. So do you keep track of players' HP and sanity as they go then? I do. I monitor my players' okay. HP okay. and sanity because I kind of want to know how much they can take, how much I can dish out, and who I can dish it out to to control the pacing. Mm. What kind of other notes do you take? Or Lex, how do you kind of take notes on a in-progress session? Sure. Um, I am awful at taking notes on an in-progress <laughs> session. My notes tend to look like a doctor's prescription pad, as if something key happens, if I improvise something or like a detail happens, I'll just jot down and be like, gun in pink room, and hope that I will remember what I refer to later. Generally, what I've gotten in the habit of doing is I'll have these very scatterbrained notes during a session. And then immediately after, try and sit down and plot things out, or at least while I'm mulling on it the next day or so, I make plans for the next session in advance. So sort of based on the key events that Mm -hmm. happened, what things do I want to make sure that I carry forward to refresh on before running the session next time? So so hmm? you're kind of preparing the next session right after 
the end of the previous one when it's fresh. Yeah, for sure. That's whenever all of those juices are still going for me. And it's I'm really thinking about the things that I enjoyed from that session that the players responded to. And it's always easier to think up these great events and plot hooks and things whenever it's quiet and you're not having to actively keep the show going. So using that moment of quiet reflection to think of terrible things that I want my player characters to go through in the next session. Yeah, and I love that train of thought, Lex, because when your players are talking, you should be listening. You should be Mm -hmm. thinking, what can I do to make this situation more interesting, whether it be more horrific or how can I push along the plot using what they're saying? I agree fully. I tend to use that for active ammunition for improvisation in that session. And that's a reason that my attention can only go so far. I'm also terrible about monitoring the chat and Zoom too. So it's, yeah, I'm mostly just active listening and occasionally jotting down something. In terms of the active listening as well, something that I'm trying to get better at is ask probing questions throughout. I think there are a lot of game systems that push towards that, like Powered by the Apocalypse or Carved from Brindlewood games, really push forward the idea of asking very targeted questions to evoke emotions or responses for things and i think that's useful for any horror game because not only does it get a response from the player but it gives you something pretty good to use later and i think sort of expanding on that i have tended to ask players how their agent or investigator is reacting to something Mm -hmm. like what are they feeling what are they thinking I will tend to throw those out whenever I don't exactly know what's going to happen next. And I'm sort of like, vamp for me, buy some time. But I've also found that it's a nice way to have them bring some additional investment in. If you have some players that are kind of like, yeah, I'll look through the bookcase and I just want to search the room for clues. I'm like, okay, so you find this. How does it make this person feel? Um, Or asking like, has your character... Would they have taken drama in high school and just allow them to maybe come up with some backstory right on the fly that can then be used to fuel future engagements? And I love that so much, Lex, because when you're asking a player character, how do you feel or how does your character interact with their surroundings, right? It serves a dual purpose. One, you're letting that player character shine and give a bit of their insight and how they want to portray their character. And two, you're also buying yourself time to think. Mm -hmm. And having that information will, even if you don't use it right away, is handy. And it helps when you ask these questions of how do you react and things. Uh, A bad habit I have is staying too quick to leave a scene. So maybe a horrible monster jumps out. And I go, ooh, this is such a clever time to swap over to another scene. When in reality, what I'm doing is diffusing the tension because this person now has a lot of extra time to think, react, do that sort of uh, gap of time. So in terms of pacing, sometimes it's good to just go, the action is starting, you're in it, go, 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 no time to think. Something that I have done before is if there are multiple characters in an area doing something and one of them has had a significant amount of spotlight, maybe doing something ridiculous like, I don't know, carrying a screaming baby in a pet carrier out of a house (laughs) onto a suburban street in broad daylight and the other one is sitting in the getaway car. I find that a great time to swap to 
what are they doing while they watch all of this happen in what feels like slow motion? It's a great way to get maybe not even active participants some spotlight time. Mm-hmm. Even if they're because they could have a purely mental response, but at least they're involved at that point. And I want to kind of go from there is one of the tricks that you should be doing as a good GM, good GM habit, I should say, is uh, trying to drive player interaction. Your role as a GM, sometimes you can end up talking too much, and it's usually better to throw something to the players and have them duke it out, fight it out. So don't feel like you have to spend an hour describing a scene. Get the players involved. Actually, uh, hijacking that thought for just a second, something that I have found has been really helpful. Um, I am guilty of taking too many notes before a session, <laughs> and so I will just tend to monologue a bit and describing the room, and it's like fucking Stephen King. What I have found <laughs> instead is like break things into bullets and limit yourself to like one or two bullets at a time and keep sprinkling those in because that allows the yeah. player's time to sort of envision a room then you can add another detail. And they're like, oh, I don't like that. And it's like, well, did I even mention this drip coming from the ceiling? Yeah, something that I like to do is called visualization before a game. So I basically just close my eyes and I imagine the scene. So for example, let's talk about a war-torn battlefield between orcs and humans. If I close my eyes, I'm going to see the crows flying overhead. I'm going to see the war banners that are slightly broken and twisted on the ground, the glint of steel, the smell of blood in the air, the the pale bones in the earth. And you want to paint a picture for your players. So it's got to be evocative. You got to use five senses to put them there. And while I'm doing this before the game, I'm also taking bullet points, just like Lex said. And then I'm also interspersing each bullet point as needed when I'm describing such things. It's such a powerful technique. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you'll be able to do it without closing your eyes. You'll be do, And it's such a great way to improv as well. And you don't even have to come up with these all yourself. One of the things I've seen, we played public access a little while back, and one of the very clever things it does is it actually asks the players, you describe some aspect of the scene. So it might be, What about this house reminds you of your grandmother? What about this house puts you ill at ease? Something to those effects is you can get players to scare themselves before you even have to do anything. Segwaying off of that, there's a lot you can learn from different game systems. For example, I actually got really good at describing combat and the effects of it, the aftermath of combat through my experience with Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder. And I was able to use those transferable skills and have those shine where you wouldn't really expect that, like in Call of Cthulhu. Like I can get really visceral and it really draws the players in. Vice versa, my sense of pacing and the buildup of dread that actually helped me run better games in Pathfinder and in Dungeons and Dragons because I learned that skill. So just keep your mind open and 
take what you like about different game systems because each game system really emphasizes something different and that will make you a better gm and i think this is getting into something um don't be afraid to blend rules from one system to the other if it works for you and it works for your group I am notorious for blending Call of Cthulhu and Delta Green together <laughs> into this chocolate and vanilla swirl, as there are certain parts like the the fight back and dodge mechanic in Call of Cthulhu makes so much more sense to me than the by the next turn forward thing. Likewise, I love using passive skill values for checks. And so I will I give each player a notebook with some notebook paper and graph paper and then some of those little um, those transparent folders with printouts of just general rules reference and i will indicate the ones that i use as home rules for instance in d100 percentile dice games i make 69 also a critical success because it's funny <laughs> um i also in games like delta green if players say that they really want to unload into an enemy of some sort I will treat it like a called shot and take a minus 20% penalty, and then they can roll their damage dice basically with advantage and take the higher value. The thing is, their gun is probably going to be out of ammunition because they've been fanning the hammer. Um, I've had a lot of poor experiences from GMs that wanted to stick to rules as written so firmly, especially in terms of D&D. And there were so many times at the table that we as players would get frustrated that like, this is dumb. It doesn't make sense. Well, that's how the rules are written. Doesn't fucking matter. The players don't know what is in the module. They don't know what is in the rules. They know the story that is told at the table. So do things that make things conducive and fun for everyone. And I'd like to add to that because mechanics should never overtake your ability to run a fun game. Mechanics are usually there for people to to stand behind like hey these are the rules this is the baseline but that's not an end-all be-all if that's if a mechanic is going to interfere with the the plot or players fun i'm i will have no problem axing it yeah the flexibility is key and i wanted to get back to something you've both mentioned uh lex you were talking about handing out a sheet and alex you were talking about reading body language um a lot of our games tend to be online anymore and that definitely makes it more difficult to hand out physical props for obvious reasons or to read body language. What are some habits that you've learned to kind of uh, mitigate that? Right. So if players' cameras aren't on, usually I have no problem just asking. Like, hey, how's everyone feeling? Is Are you getting enough screen time or are you getting too much screen time? Does anyone want any content addressed? And I just verbally ask them instead of trying to read their body language, either during the game, if something is uh, really dire or during a break, a bio break. I almost exclusively run games through Zoom now because I do much more nonverbal communication. I mean, I gesticulate a lot too. And so I very much keep an eye on how the player that I'm primarily engaging with is reacting. Are they still like actively listening to the situation? I can tell that they're thinking, but also keeping an eye on the other players. And if I can tell that someone seems to be like browsing memes or like I see that they're typing and it's not going into chat, then I'll start taking that as cues to switch the perspective over and to try and give everyone a fair amount of screen time. Um, I always have my notes right next to the player screen. 
and right underneath my webcam. That way, from the player's perspective, it looks like I'm constantly maintaining eye contact with them and I'm not glancing down or referring to something. So they think that I'm super smart and have all this information here whenever I'm just like checking shit I wrote months ago. And in terms of handouts, I will tend to drop those in Discord. I, in all of my game servers, I have a dedicated handouts channel to try and make it easier for players to refer to later. Yeah, that's awesome. And speaking about verbal confirmation and seeing how your players feel, a good GM habit to have is to address content warnings during the start of the game. That is so important because you want everyone at the table to have fun. You don't want anyone to feel miserable or to be reminded of something in the past that they've experienced. So you got, you always got to be conscientious about that. <laughs> so I guess in that case, the best GM habit will be a session zero yes. and to go over trigger warnings and for players to state their expectations. What do they want to get out of this and just get a mood? Do they want something to just be more kick-ass and fun? Feel free to roll into pulp then. But if they want a more serious kind of an investigation that goes into uncomfortable places, then you will know how to work with that group to have the best time for everyone. And it lets you do one of the things I like doing the most out of these games, which is character creation together. It's such an easy way to get people to buy into each other's character. And it gives you the time where you're not rushed. Like if you do it in front of session one, sometimes you might rush characters and you, you get kind of by the books. If you have a dedicated time to go through that, you can really let players throw things off the wall and say, oh, yeah, what if we were friends before in the war? Or what if we were related? And they can have these sort of discussions without feeling like they're cutting into game time. That's really where the magic happens. Uh, something that I do that's a little sneaksy is um, if players want, I will give them all the resources to create characters and then say, we're going to have a session zero just to go over some of this stuff. So some players with initiative will create their own characters and have it done. And then I say, we're going to go into character creation. If they already have this idea of their character, that's fine. That gives them time to bounce some ideas off of others or give advice and saying it's like, oh, no, no, I already have high deck, so you can do something else to help build a more cohesive party. But also every player that I have had that has made a character ahead of time has significantly changed that character mm -hmm. by the end of that session zero. And I think it has led to a much more cohesive group together. There's also a level of enthusiasm you get with that sort of character creation that pushes in towards the next few sessions, usually, of just that excitement that you can't replace. Another thing that I would like to emphasize is the fact that you should play to your strengths. Find out your style of GMing, because my style of GMing is going to be different from Lex's style of GMing, which is going to be different from <laughs> Nathan's <laughs> style of GMing. So yeah, play, play to those strengths, right? <laughs> If you love combat and pulp gameplay, like run more of that and be mm -hmm. passionate about that because yeah. that will shine through. Um, if you use digital notes versus handwritten notes, play to those strengths. Like I fully take advantage of having digital notes. Even when I'm in person, I have my laptop with me because that's just how I operate. I operate efficiently with digital notes because I like having tables and I like being able to to read what is written because I can't read my own handwriting. 
That's actually, um, we should probably just make a solid list of everything that we actually say is a habit, because while this road <laughs> is meandering a lot, um, another habit that I really recommend doing is I have a physical copy of the book. I have some physical notes. I have a PDF of that book ready to go for those emergency control F searches. And I have a digital copy of my notes. Uh, something that Alex showed me a while back is using the outline feature of Google Docs because it sets up a sidebar that you can immediately click and move through. So I have sections for all of the NPCs, most of the areas of interest to quickly go with just a few key bullet points. That way it can refresh me and I don't have to stop and go, uh, give me a minute. Yeah, that's something akin to using sticky notes on a page to get to it quicker, except digital. And I mean, you're really covering the knowledge of the scenario or rule system and whatnot. It, if you're going to GM, it's best to read it once at least. And when you're reading a scenario, make sure you're getting an idea of what you want to highlight and what is very important to not miss for the scenario to work. What, what would you what would you like to call that as another term? Maybe something like a, a beating heart or something? A beating I don't know. Wouldn't catch on. Wouldn't catch on. Eh. <laughs> but from there, as long as you have that, you can improv a fair bit of things. If you're comfortable doing that, you don't always have to look things up. I've definitely changed NPCs or events just on the fly because I go, I don't remember that. It's fine. We'll we'll get the gist of it and loop back around. And. This is something I learned a lot in reading through, I believe the title is Play Unsafe by Graham Walmsley. Mm -hmm. And this is where I have just really keep recommending the players don't know what the original story is. And if the players at your table are really thinking like, oh, there's got to be a pathway in the basement that's got to lead here. Fucking do it. Like if, if the players are really interested in something, don't just say, oh, there isn't anything here. Maybe you should try another room, but just change it. It's okay, because what really matters is the shared storytelling that happens at the table. So I tend to just have sort of major key points. If there's going to be a conflict at the end and I deviate, just be thinking about how you're going to have that road route back to it. And I love how you say that, Lex, because uh, I think I read this on the internet, but it really just warms my heart because you come to the table everyone comes to the table with ideas but a story that's something you leave the table with at the end of the game yeah i always think of tabletop role-playing games as shared storytelling at the end of the day that is really what matters right we have our war stories that like having a session where you super glue a gnome to an eagle and then make that eagle huge to fly the gnome around that's the ridiculousness that you tell other folks and so that's really the heart of it. That's the beating heart of role playing. I still don't yeah. think that's going to work. Uh, <laughs> Never catch on. We don't have a corpse. Uh, yet. <laughs> so one of the things we touched on there is practicing improv techniques. And I don't think this is new to most people as you hear the yes and sort of technique for these things. And it ties back to what you're saying is they say, oh, I bet there's a secret passage. Yes. And it's guarded by a, a gate that you can't get through, for example. You know, you've introduced something interesting into the plot that maybe you didn't have originally. Now, of course, as GM, you should also know when to say, no, there's nothing there. In an investigative game, like we 
typically play, a red herring can take a lot of time that you're not prepared for. Uh, yeah. <laughs> On the topic of improv, I was talking to Morgan Llewellyn of Into the Darkness, and we were talking about improv and how to portray a really like compelling non-player character. And he was telling me that you should be playing your NPCs like you were playing a PC. Like you should understand how they grew up. What is their story? How do they think? What are their motivations? He gave me an example, right? If he was playing a ruthless businessman in a mothership game and he told me, well, how does he view the world? He views the world with complete utilization. What is the value of something? What is a human body? A human body is something that can be taken advantage of and used to milk resources, right? That's awesome to just mm -hmm. be able to get into the shoes of that NPC. That's how you're going to make it believable. Yeah, completely different worldview between characters. Interesting. Yeah, I always say that GMing is essentially you're coming into every game session with a handful of pre-gens that you get to swap between at any time. I think that's why it's typically the folks that are the most excited about a system tend to be the GMs, because you can bring that enthusiasm to all of these different characters to flesh out a more cohesive world. I think also sort of related to your yes and point, I don't always do yes ands. Like, like you said, that sometimes if the player characters are up against a wall, occasionally I'll just have to pull the curtain back and say, there's nothing here. Or like your right. character doesn't feel like this is a great idea. Or you um, don't find anything. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I don't like saying no. I tend to like, if they try something and they fail the skill check, don't say nothing happened because that's really boring. Say how it might've kind of happened, or maybe they did it and something went wrong. You know, they're trying to drive their car and they failed the drive check. That doesn't necessarily mean that the car stalls out or they immediately go off the road, but they could clip a cop car mid chase and then that starts coming around after them. In the cases with several of my player characters, um, well, not my players characters, not mine, they tend to hit on anything that moves. And so every time that they roll <laughs> and a persuade check and fail, then like they might be hitting on someone that has then stolen their wallet. And so like, yeah, I mean, you, you hit on them. It's nice. fine. Also, your wallet's not there anymore. <laughs> Unlucky. You were talking about research. That's a good one of maybe they fail. And what that failure gives them is an idea of how long it will take to succeed. Yeah. So it's information that they're still getting something and it gives them a path that they can go down if they want to continue. And it doesn't roadblock you. Otherwise, you can have scenarios that just stop because people fail a key role yeah i think avoiding roadblocks is just a huge thing that's going to be really beneficial like you don't necessarily always have to have floating clues but if your character fails a skill check don't say you can't read it just say like you are really trying but it's been so long since you took latin for a minor to impress what's her name so it's going to take you several hours to do this and just say, like, is that player willing to make that investment? The players know from a slight metagame perspective, like, I'm giving you some options. You can absolutely do this if right. you want, but you're not locked into it yet. Options is the key there. That's what makes it fun is players need to have choices that they can make that will have an impact. 
right. As the GM, you are the adjudicator. Prompt the players. Narrate what happens. Ask, what are you doing? Related to this topic, would you recommend watching other APs or other groups playing through a scenario to learn how you might want to run it? Yes. I will have to add that you should be watching it with an analytical eye. You shouldn't just take what they're running as gospel. You need to see what works for them and their group, what you disagree with, and, and really just think for yourself, like, hey, would this run? Would this fly in my group? Or maybe I'd do this a little differently. Yeah. Like, that's how you're going to learn and develop your own style. Yeah. That was the big asterisk that I had. If I ever were going to recommend it as a yes, it's like, yes, to see how someone else has gone through it and get some ideas. But I will strongly say, like, do not ever watch an AP and say, that's how I'm going to do it. Because right. your players are not going to do the same thing. It is truly laws of entropy there. Steal all their good ideas and get <laughs> rid of just like clip oh, the bad Shamelessly. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, That's how you learn. Like you <laughs> Good said, GM before, habit. Steal from others. Steal, steal, steal. Yes. Um, and two, when you're watching these, you mentioned keep an idea on story issues they might have, that sort of thing. Keep an idea of what are the limitations that I have. If I'm watching a pulp game, I can recognize sections that I'm going to have trouble running because I don't typically run that sort of game. So I'll know I need to prepare extra for that or change it in some way. Yeah. Another habit that I recommend implementing, especially in investigative games, is when reading through a scenario, if there is not an active timetable or a ticking clock, uh, sometimes we'll call it, think about how you might be able to introduce one. Um, as an example of the pitfall that I had whenever I was just getting started with GMing Delta Green, I ran music from a darkened room for a group of completely new role players. And this isn't really getting into spoilers, but the main objective of the scenario is to go in the spooky house. And that is the one thing that the players never wanted to do. Like they went in once right off the bat and they got freaked out and they left. They spent five sessions in a row just doing research to try and find the secret and be prepared. And like at a point, I was just like, listen, you can't find anything else. You just got to go in the spooky house. And having a ticking clock or some sort of outside pressure that you can apply as a GM when needed can avoid players stalling out, constantly looking for research or wondering, why are we even here? Um, which is very tough. That's a good session zero topic, too, as well. of being explicit at addressing in this case of saying you are going to a haunted house what would draw your character in there what kind of investment can we give that you won't do the rational thing and say that place is haunted great when's the next bus out of town <laughs> fuck that next <laughs> money's usually a weak motivator yeah 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 uh, that's where building in relationships and they don't even have to be mechanical relationships, right? You can say, like, what does your wife need, for example? Maybe there's some aspect of the haunted house that she's invested in. Well, now you have a reason that you can't just leave. 
this is getting into um, something else that I tend to do, I suppose I would just recommend as a, a useful habit. Um, view your players' character sheets as ammunition for yourself. Every detail that they put in about their character, their preferences, their backstory, their family and relations, those are tools you can use to help push and pressure them. Uh, there was an AP for Dead Channels that I really liked where Shane Ivey just said, listen, if I say that I have a sister with a kid on my character sheet, I fully expect you to mess with that sister's kid relationship, family dynamic. Like, say mm -hmm. there is a kid in danger. That is going to motivate my character. And so being able to use that to help fuel ideas for how you can incentivize that character to go in. And players are going to love that, too, because it, again, goes back to showing that you're listening. Also, your players care the most about their character. So any sort of name drops and things that you can do in there, especially if you mention part of their key backstory that is, uh, Nathan, I think you called it a synchronicity, that just like they come across this name Gabriel. And then that player's first thought may be like, that's my kid's name. And then that is going to get them much more involved in that. Oh, that's great. One of the things that I think we have all tried to do the most of lately is practicing GMing. It's we're somewhat active and scheduling things throughout the week and getting on there. But what kind of things do you two use to make the most of your practicing? Right. So I'm a bit of a freak and I'm really into my hobby. So what I do is I scour the internet for advice with the same analytical mind that uh, I, that I was talking about where I'm getting rid of rubbish or seeing what works for me, but I'm going through blog sites from prominent RPG writers. I am watching other APs and seeing what I like. I'm also asking questions to scenario authors and GMs that I look up to. So just to get these other perspectives. And another thing that I would wholly recommend is to run for different people other than your mm. friend group yeah. like that you run for every week. Because eventually you're going to get used to running games for that specific friend group that's going to be kind of predictable. Running for people like online or at conventions just allows for a new avenue of experiences and of, of different perspectives that can really bolster your repertoire. And it pays to have bad games because bad mm -hmm. games can be learning experiences. I will also, at the end of every session, I ask players, did you have fun? Are there any comments? Let me know as I always, I'm always trying to improve at least a little bit. If I'm better tomorrow than I was today, that's a success. So just being able to say like, was there anything that didn't work for you in that? You can use that to learn and make the next session better. What are yeah. some good tips you'd have for encouraging responses from players? Because obviously nobody wants to hurt feelings, but how do you draw it more out of that? Is it just creating a good atmosphere of discussion? What's your trick? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be a pussy. Um, <laughs> be a man. Yeah. No, no. Um, sometime what I I'll do. Shit. No. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> shit, I need to stop laughing. Um, 
maybe it's because I'm a bit self-deprecating. Uh, whenever I do that asking, like, so did everything work out? Was anything okay? Um, if they say, like, yeah, I get some noncommittal mumbles. And I'll say, like, yeah, because there was, like, I, I kind of blanked at this mm-hmm. one part. I didn't know what to add in there. And it's not to elicit that, no, 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 you were fine. Everything was great. It's just trying to sort of break the ice to say, I felt shaky on this. So if you have any advice or insight, let me know what would have worked better for you there. You can also hit them with, uh, what'd you like about it? Yeah. So you can get. And then whenever it's silent, that's whenever you just go crawl under your covers and uh, don't come (laughs) back out. (laughs) I'll put that as a good habit for a GM is learn to take constructive criticism. I know that I hit these things. And if someone says, Oh, I didn't like that. It's very easy for that to be the end of the the world, but it's really not. Most of the people you play with are legitimately trying to help and have fun. And sometimes it's just not that deep because maybe someone didn't enjoy something um, and they're really like ripping into your game. But unless it's someone who also has the same amount of experience that you have or better, take it with a grain of salt. Even then, I, this is not just a GM habit, but just a sort of person habit. Choose whose opinions matter to you. Mm. Well, now we have to start charging for therapy. <laughs> I take copay, by the way. Uh, You're going to think this is kind of silly, but before I run a game, I usually get butterflies and I'm a little nervous, but I, I kind of have this mantra I say to myself and it's just, hey, I'm going to have fun. And I think I took that from Seth Skorkowski's video, like whatever happens, I'm going to have fun at the table. And I always smile because I believe that that energy is infectious. And it also doubles as a good poker face when I'm always smiling. People say when I smile, I look like a cannibal. So I think that's why I've just gravitated towards horror games, because they tend to get more uncomfortable when I smile, which I guess works. It's (laughs) it's not just when you smile. (laughs) and i just want to kind of reiterate too is what we're talking about is practicing and getting in the time if you're lucky enough to have the time scheduled to do multiple sessions a month that's great getting in different game systems is really helpful if you can do that with your group i've been doing more story games rather than crunchier games and i found that there's a lot of things that i can draw back in to help the emotional content of the game and sometimes also i want to go back and play some pathfinder because i want some crunchy combat so when you're studying and trying to learn what resources do you tend to go to i like to read a lot of different books just from a a fun thing. I'm currently reading RuneQuest to kind of get the feel of a different world like that. Um, I really enjoy the writing on Rowan Rook and Descartes games that they've published, like Heart and Spire. Uh, Grant Howard and Christopher Taylor do a great job of making approachable rules, but also advice for GMs that really apply to everything. And Really, any system, even if I'm never going to get to run it, you can kind of pick a vibe from it and maybe introduce that later. That seems like a great way to justify your excessive Kickstarter purchases. It is that, yes. (laughs) Also, yes. (laughs) 
out of my seven years that I've been GMing now, I've found myself gravitating towards one specific blog, which is called The Angry GM, which is RPG Advice with Attitude. Now, it's a, a blog written by someone who's been GMing for quite some time, and they, they ramble a lot and they swear a lot. But if you filter all that stuff out, there's some there's some gold. How about you, Lex? I don't know. I don't really have a whole lot to add for this. I am personally trying to make my way through uh, Cults Beyond Darkness and Madness, which was recommended by Seth Skorkowski as, I believe I'm quoting, a master's course in how to run horror games. And like Alex said, running different games to get ideas that you can implement and bring in for other scenarios and systems. I think Tom Rayleigh, he told me, like, rarely is any idea original you just have to be good at the presentation and the execution of it and it's about your flavor i think that that is the most important Mm -hmm. part i just want to say lex saying it's about your flavor is not helping you on those cannibalism charges so let's talk about something you've tried in our trying right now to make into a habit. Is there anything you're working on? One thing that I'm working on currently is utilizing cheat sheets more. Hmm. You know, so I can just have the rules and not spend time looking them up in the middle of a game because like pacing is so important and we'll probably get into pacing in another episode. But just having the information that I need right there either copy paste it onto like a word document or in its own formatted document that's that's been a, a huge help so far and another habit that i've been trying to do is just to dedicate some more time to to studying game mastering excellent are there any resources you're particularly looking at for that kind of studying uh, beyond the angry gm that you mentioned before yeah and I would say I've been asking questions to authors and GMs that I look up to mm-hmm. for their input or their view or their perspective, what works for them. And I found that amount of years doesn't necessarily equate to experience. Building on that, something that I will say in terms of looking for resources on a scenario, um, you don't make a lot of money in terms of publishing tabletop RPG scenarios. And the authors and people who create these things tend to just be folks who are doing this from a passion, from an interest. Like they're they're hobbyists that really want to share and create and share something with others. They're just people. Yes, don't ever be afraid to reach out to them and just ask. Uh, Say that I'm going to be running this and just had some questions about like this motivation or these thoughts. Because I have rarely met or interacted with an author of a scenario that was ever rude about it in the slightest. Most of the time, they're flattered that you're like, oh, well, I'm so glad that you liked it. And giving sort of advice and resources in there, um, it's tend to be good people in this circle. And the thing is, we're people too. Allegedly. Who are very passionate. That's why we started this. And from that, let them know that you played the game and enjoyed it too is if i have a chance to reach out to someone that i played the game of especially if they're not like a big name in quotes i always reach out and say hey we had a great time playing your scenario 
how to be a decent human. I mean, there is some aspect to that of just it, it's easy with the book in the way to not see an author there and they're fairly approachable. We're in such a niche hobby. Like, we mm-hmm. got to support each other. Agreed. That's how progress is made. And I'll jump in with one of the habits I'm working on right now is being better at asking questions of players and then incorporating them into games. I think there's a lot more investment that people will get from that. And it saves me perhaps a little selfishly of having to work out an investment for all the players ahead of time. Let's go around. And what's the best piece of advice you've gotten about running RPGs? You have to think for now. What matters most is the story that is told at the table. It is everyone's collaborative experience and having a good story to tell. Having that in mind freed me up a lot more in terms of that there's always this pressure, like here is this block of text that you have read and this really interesting story and all of these details and things. And you really want to, I mean, you're tempted to sort of follow that story like a cookie cutter mold, but being able to step back from that and just essentially use it as a prompt and let your players make their own movie in their minds is one of the more liberating and I've had a lot more fun sessions since sort of relaxing my grip on the wheel like that. Yeah, I actually got some advice that is fairly simple, which is just make sure everyone is having a good time and play to your strengths and to be like a sponge. Never stop Mm -hmm. learning. And very porous. Yes. I know that's three, Nathan. (laughs) I can count. Putting an and between it doesn't make it one. (laughs) Damn. My piece of advice I think I saw first in Dungeon World is be a fan of the characters. That's a good one. Mm. Yeah, just it drives so much investment from uh, the focus is often on here's the investigation, here's the scenario. When in reality, that's secondary to the players that are playing through that scenario. And it really helps you kind of look at it from the lens of how are they going to react to it? What are some things I can put in there to make it personal to them and just go on from there? Yeah, and it's it emphasizes it's like it's not you versus them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's you trying to make them feel awesome and feel cool and have this great experience i believe Ginny d she says to shoot your monks because Mm. in dungeons and dragons (laughs) monks have this awesome ability to deflect arrows and if the gm knows that they're never going to shoot their monks so they're never going to get to use that ability but if you shoot your monks they'll have that awesome moment where yeah they do get to deflect those arrows and that makes the player feel great God, you just described one of the main reasons I quit playing D&D. And it was because I had bad GMs. I would make characters to be super tanky and have high armor class. And then they're like, well, this enemy's intelligent. So they're obviously not going to try to hit you because they know they can't hit. I'm like, that's fucking boring. As a player, I hated it. I'm having a ratatouille moment here. 
<laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I really like that. Um, I'm going to have to carry that forward. And it doesn't mean don't challenge them or cause them grievous harm or their bonds grievous harms. That's that's also being a fan of seeing how they react, but giving them the opportunity to kind of explore that's the key there. Being a fan of their characters and making their characters a star of something. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. whenever you're running more combat-based games like D&D or Pathfinder or something, like Alex is saying, let your players use that cool feature that they may have willingly incorporated because that makes them feel kick-ass. Right. That's sort of the point of those types of games. It's like you are there to tell epic stories of kick-ass characters. If you're playing a more drawn-out investigative horror game, you want the best day of that player character's life to be the day before that investigation started. <laughs> I will say the those like that shoot your monk mentality, it translates to games like Delta Green. Like if mm-hmm. I have a lawyer agent who has 80 in bureaucracy, that'd be kick-ass if I can forge documents and get my cell uh, illicit supplies. So yeah. play to your, yeah. your player character's strengths. If you have a player that jumps in with a like computer hacker type, even if the scenario doesn't necessarily have any like hacky elements, add it. Try and find some ways yeah. to work that in. Like let your player characters do the things they're good at. Um, I guess that's also, I'm just sort of veering into monologuing territory, but like, let your players succeed at doing the thing. Mm-hmm. They want to do the thing. Like, don't make it super hard or difficult for them to do so. Um, I feel like that mostly just clogs up the scenario with artificial difficulty. In my experience, a lot of arc dream scenarios are really difficult to get into as written. Like, in some cases, it's so hard to get into this like secret facility. And it's like, cool. Yeah. I get it from a story building perspective, but that's going to make for a boring fucking game session. So give them a way to like, let your hacker character crack through this door or like there's a gap in this guard's rotation. Your con man can sneak through or put on a uniform. Uh, That's, that's what makes a satisfying story. And it's a good time we mentioned session zeros before to get an overview of what you'll be working with and go into your preparations with that in mind. Oh, another good GM habit. If your villains are going to monologue, make sure your player characters can't (laughs) see them. Like they can do it over an intercom or something. (laughs) Or Or just they're they're behind bulletproof glass. Yeah. Um, And if they monologue early, definitely have a monologue at the end. So this time the player can interrupt them. Because everybody loves to interrupt the monologue. Oh, yeah. We hope our deranged utterings are helpful in bringing this topic to life at your table. You can join the discussion on Discord and subscribe or follow the podcast to hear more gruesome consultations. Be sure to check out the show notes for links from the discussion where to find us, and other links for things like handouts or other resources. So until next time, thanks for listening to RPG Reanimators. Where your games can die. Or live. On the table. I'm a bit of a freak. <laughs>